Hey, welcome to Lakeview Sermon of the Week. We're so grateful to have you here, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. Um, I never want to ever give off the impression that I could do this without Holy Spirit. And, uh, and I do love ministering. I love preaching. I love the anointing. I'll never forget the first time I preached a sermon, and I was so nervous. Um, I got up to the platform, and I forgot everything I'd studied. And I go, oh, my gosh. What am I going to do? And so it was like there was somebody was introducing me, and, and it was like the Charlie Brown teacher. <laughs> so I was just like in this like out-of-body experience of like, how am I going to do this? What have I done to myself? Why would I put myself in this position? And then... Um, I, I consoled myself, and here's how I encouraged myself in the Lord. Are you ready? I said, um, well, at least when I get done with this, I'll never have to do this again. <laughs> yeah, 20 years later. Um, and then they handed me the mic, and it was like somebody dumped a bucket of warm honey on me. And then all my nerves left. And I went, ah, this is what they meant when they said the anointing. And so the Lord was showing me in that moment, you can't do this without me. You cannot do this without me. And and the Lord's just humbling me, and uh, he's got me in a really vulnerable place right now. And, um, And I've just started looking at the Apostle Paul and how he ministered. And what would it look like if the Apostle Paul came to modern day now? What would that ministry look like? And then I thought, well, why don't I partner with Holy Spirit and try to strive to look like the Apostle Paul and call people to that kind of a standard? And so when I read the Apostle Paul and he goes to minister, he says things like this. I didn't come to you with eloquent words or the wisdom of men, but I came to you in a demonstration of power. And so I've been thinking to myself, what in the world does that look like? And what did he even mean? Because you know, he didn't really define what that meant. (laughs) So I've set my heart to that course and say, God, whatever it takes to get me there, or when I get up, it's not the wisdom of men or the eloquence of words, but God, that I would disappear and that you would appear. Because um, we can't do this without him. The cultural tides are shifting and the reason why the world is the way it is is we're getting the exact results of what we've been putting out. And so something's gotta change. And here's where it's got to change, right here. This is where it's got to change. And uh, so I'm going to commit to you as a covenant family that I I will not settle for less than all that God has for my life. And I don't want you to settle for less than all that God has for your life. So... 
that's where, um, where I'm at. And um, I'm praying that the weaker I get, the stronger he gets. And so um, the tenor of this sermon might sound a little different than some of my other ones. Maybe not. We'll see. But um, there's a heavy word on, on my heart, and I want to share it with you. Because I want to see you reach your fullness in Jesus. I want to see you go past me or anything I could ever do. That I don't want to be the lid for the church or the ceiling or my effectiveness be the effectiveness of you. I just want to be wood on the altar that burns so that you could burn even brighter and do even more than I could possibly do, think, or even imagine. And so that's my, that's my goal uh, for you. Um, so what I'm learning is, um, as I'm looking at Scripture, I used to read Scripture and, and I would frame it in a way of like, I just need to gather this information and get it in my brain. And then when I get really spiritual, I'll gather the information in Hebrew and Greek and then put it in my brain. <laughs> but what I've found is, is when I do that, I don't necessarily change. I just become smarter. <laughs> and that I find myself that if I'm not careful and it stays in the realm of knowledge then I'll actually become puffed up and prideful the more I know about him. Isn't that odd? The more I can know about him, the more prideful I can be and arrogant I could be and self-righteous I could be. So there's about an 18-inch drop that's got to happen is where all this stuff that you're putting up here has got to drop about 18 inches and get to about right here, to the center of your being and the center of your soul. And if that drop doesn't happen, you will just be an unhappy person that knows more about the Lord than another unhappy person or another person. And so as I begin to read Scripture and, in, and I begin to reach adversities, I would find out what was really in me. And have you ever been discouraged that you hit a tough time and you find out what's in you? Where did that come from? <laughs> I thought I was further along than that. <laughs> so I begin to reframe the way I read scripture because I'd read it at least one time through a year, sometimes multiple times a year, and would find myself still kind of stuck. And so I quit reading scripture from the concept of this is information I'm trying to gather or content I'm trying to memorize, even though that's okay. But I started reading scripture as an invitation to what was possible for my life. And I think what can happen sometimes is, is when we're reading scripture and, and we find something that doesn't measure up to our experience, if we're not careful, we'll lower the scripture to our experience instead of raise our experience to what the Bible says we ought to be. And so what's happened in Christianity, especially in the Western world, is we've lowered the bar so low that everybody can jump over it. 
and nobody knows what even being a Christian is anymore because the bar is so low just that in the Western world, you can be a Christian and not even follow Christ. <laughs> because you said a prayer and asked him to forgive you. You've now become a Christian. Behold the glory of God. And I want to submit to you that that gospel is nowhere in the New Testament, and it's not the gospel Jesus preaches. That is a truncated form, a perverted form of the gospel that would get you to believe that you can be forgiven of sin but not be a disciple of Jesus. So if we're going to move into the place of fruitfulness, if we're going to move into the place to be all that God has for us and all that God wants us to be, if we're going to move into these realms, we have to embrace the gospel in its fullness and in its greatest measure, which is Jesus is the center of it all, and he is the king of my life. That to be saved is to believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. The first mantra of the early church was Jesus is Lord. Why? Because everywhere it was written, Caesar is Lord. There was even a day to where they called it the Lordy Day where they would bring out a bust of Caesar and they had lots of different gods and lots of different things going on and they'd bring out a bust of Caesar and for that day you'd have to announce every other god, bow a knee and go, Caesar is Lord. So the church's first mantra, the church's first statement to prove that they were in the faith was in response to Caesar and his decrees, and it was, no, Jesus is Lord. And the first church refused to bow their knee to anything but him. That that's where they started, and look where they ended. The whole world turned upside down. We don't start as Jesus is Lord. You know where we start? Uh, you're a sinner. You've got a lot of sin. You fell short of the glory of God. Ask God to forgive you. And maybe down the road, you know, when you serve God enough, you might eventually make him Lord of your life. But that's an option. You don't have to do that. That's just for the really spiritual ones, the ones who are called. Oh, man, I told you you wasn't going to be shouting today. I told you. But I'm trying to get to the root of this thing. I want you to know what you're signing up for. I want, to know, I want you to know what you're enlisting into. That all power and authority have been given from heaven and on earth to King Jesus. For what? For you to preach the gospel and make disciples. Not to further your agendas, not to further your political party of your choosing. Oh, I knew that wouldn't get any shouts. <laughs> but to further the gospel of the kingdom. 
that God has given you, get this, God has given you all power and authority to baptize nations into him. So what does that look like? I mean, we're just trying to baptize anybody. And God's like, no, I'm giving you all power and authority. Go baptize nations. What does it look like to dunk a nation into him? but it's gonna take a lot of crucified soldiers to baptize a nation. It's gonna take a lot of people doing more than just giving some lip service and sharing the scripture of the day once in a while. And by the way, if you're sending me those, please don't send me those. I've got so much stuff I'm reading through, just like, I appreciate the scripture of the day, but just don't send me that anymore, okay? I have to like it as if I've, and I'm, I appreciate it, but we're just gonna bear all of our heart and soul today, okay? I'm just gonna tell you, like, we've gotta grow. And growth is not an option. Jesus commands fruitfulness. And so now when I read the scripture, I realize it's actually an invitation for him to give me the grace to accomplish the thing that I'm reading about that it's not something that I spectate from and cheer from afar and wonder if that could ever happen in my life, that it's actually the invitation of God saying, here's this command, I know it seems above your head, but I created it that way, so that you would know, separate from the Holy Spirit, you cannot achieve that thing. Because he's trying to put us in the place for those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength and they will mount up with wings like eagles. He's teaching us what it is to wait upon him to give the power that only he can provide to accomplish what only he can accomplish. And will a church be willing to do that? And that's why God demands fruitfulness because his spirit will do the work if we'll submit to him. That all God needs is your yes and your surrender. (laughs) He needs arms lifted high that say, all right, you're in charge. And then he can come in and accomplish everything else that he wants to accomplish in your life. That's really all that he needs. But it's the thing that we don't wanna give him. It's like, I need that. I need that control. (laughs) I need a last little vestige to to cover up the shameful parts of my life that I don't want anyone else to see so that I'm not known for whom I actually am. But I'm known for who I want people to perceive me to be, which becomes a false self or ego. And so you saved face, but you got no fruit. And then you create theologies that make you feel better about your fruitlessness. Y'all respond better to these guys, so I'm just gonna, Jesus.
that when we hold on to unresolved pain or tragedy, and when we hold on to unfairness, it becomes a root of bitterness that positions us to begin to get our eyes off of him and put our eyes on others. And so we create these circles of what, I think I've coined this phrase, but I'm not sure, maybe somebody else has said it too, but a form of comparative righteousness, where basically I look at my neighbor and see I've got more meat on the bones than they do on their scraps, so I must be more righteous than they are. And so he quits becoming the standard, and now I'm looking at everybody else and how they're living to justify the way that I'm at in my life. And the Lord wants to strip away everything that would console us of being happy to be in the place that we're at. And that he would call us deeper into apprenticeship with him. Discipleship with him. So that we can produce much fruit. So that we can produce much fruit. So let's look into the scriptures here and see what King Jesus lays out. And King Jesus does some things. We're going to be looking at Luke 13, verse 1. Luke 13, verse 1 through verse 9. And, and, and you're going to, Jesus doesn't do things the way I would do it. <laughs> um, he's got this thing about being God or something where he just kind of does what he wants to do and then expects me to bend to that. And so we're just going to let God be God and Jesus speak and then kind of sift through what he's calling us to and what he's calling us into. So if you got your Bible, your device, just get something. I want, you to, I want, you, I want your nose in the scripture here with me. Um, I want you reading it for yourself. Luke chapter 13, verse one. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way. So Jesus has this moment where he comes upon some murmurings, or maybe they brought these murmurings to him. Text doesn't specify, but Jesus is centered around people beginning to enter into conjecture and enter into ideas of kind of the old kind of statement of why do bad things happen? And maybe another step, why do bad things happen to good people? And Jesus is met with these questions, and if you're like me, I think it's my job a lot of times for the church and for everybody is to be Bible answer man. You ever feel that pressure? 
But Jesus here doesn't become Bible answer man. (laughs) He hears this talk and these murmurings about Pilate, who was one of the leaders from Rome of that day. And Pilate was known to fly off the handle and do crazy volatile. He was a volatile and violent man, which is what Rome insisted upon in their leadership so that they could keep order. And so you never knew what side of the bed Pilate was going to be on. And if you ever read any of Josephus, the first century historian's writings, you see that Pilate is, is always flying off the handle and you never knew what you were going to get when it came to Pilate. And so there's something must have happened, and and the only time that the Jews would offer sacrifices, non-priests would offer sacrifices, would be in Passover. So this would have been like their Christmas. This would have been like their high holy day of of offering a sacrifice unto God, and no man was to come empty-handed on Passover. So you have these people operating and obeying the scriptures and doing exactly what they were supposed to do, but then you have a cruel leader that comes in and for whatever reason, flies off the handle and kills these that are obeying the Lord and mingles their blood with the blood of sacrifice that they were bringing. And now news is spreading. Why in the world would that happen? Have you ever asked, why in the world did that happen? We, we all do. And so if I'm faced with this, I would immediately take off my Jesus hat and I would put on my philosopher apologetic hat and then I would step in and go, well, you know guys, uh, Adam took of the tree and made a world in which it's volatile and we don't know what can happen and we live in a fallen world and... Or I would have said, well, there's free will. God's not controlling everything. You know, I would have said, I would have gave them an answer. But Jesus doesn't answer their questions on tragedy. He actually calls their answer and raises them an answer. There's some casino talk for some of y'all that are out there. Y'all can understand that. Y'all can get that talk. He calls their answer and raises them another tragedy. Look what Jesus says. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Man, that doesn't sound like Jesus meek and mild. (laughs) Verse 4. He raises them a tragedy, or those 18 on whom the tower fell in Siloam and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's King Jesus. That's not Matt. I would have grabbed something happy and fun. We could have all clapped our hands and shouted and ran around. 
but I got to preach the whole counsel of God, not just the parts you like and the parts that'll get a response. It's just what it is. So what's he saying here? He's answering their questions about tragedy. That instead of figuring out if you're better than them or they're better than you, the issue at hand is, have you repented and bowed a knee to King Jesus and given him your entire life? That all the other noise is merely a distraction to get you to blame somebody else or to look at something else other than look in the mirror and deal with your own heart. That the pilots of the world create some noise to get our eyes off our own heart and our own relationship. And so we say, oh, if we could just get pilot out of office, we could baptize the nation. Or, oh, a national tragedy, if we could just deal with that, all would be right in the world. Wrong. It's a distraction to get you off the main thing, which is, is your heart right with the Lord? Have you repented of your sin? In other words, it doesn't matter if a tower falls on you because that's an accident or if an evil ruler runs a sword through you. The issue is you're all gonna perish. And have you made your peace with God? And have you bowed a knee to King Jesus? Or are you still playing the game? That's what he's trying to get at. And some people read that and say, man, well, Jesus isn't very kind. I wanna tell you something, Jesus is a lot kinder than you. He's a lot kinder to you. You know why? Because he'll say the true things that you're not willing to say. Jesus is saying, get your eyes on all this stuff. All that is is a mirror, smoke and mirrors to get your eyes off the real reality. Repent. Because you'll perish too. And it might be of old age, it might be. He's silencing all the other voices and saying, the matter is eternal. And there's really only one thing that matters. Have you repented of your sin? Or have you just asked God to forgive you of your sin? Need an intermission and I'll just. <laughs> that we've received such a truncated gospel of God forgive me when God wants to transform every part of you. And He wants to go as deep as you'll let Him, but He's a gentleman. It's like he only takes the bride as far as she's willing to go. 
And there's nothing in his heart that is selfish, so he's not going to force her. Take notes, guys. (laughs) He actually, as her heart trusts him, he's willing to take a step as her heart trusts him. Two tragedies in the text, one caused by evil people, one caused by accidental natural disasters. But the worst tragedy, Jesus says, is for you to repent or to not repent and to perish. (laughs) For you to go into eternity without him. And not just because you'll go to hell. That's like the most base thing. It's that you would go your whole life without knowing him. That you would go your whole life without knowing him. That's why Jesus is trying to get us to deal with our idols and our false mindsets. Not because he's controlling and brutal, but because he's kind and loving. And he realizes, if you don't put your Isaacs on the altar, you'll worship your Isaac, and you'll have it over your head, lording over you, instead of me lording over you, so that you can walk in freedom, and in peace, and in wholeness. So he deals with us and all these idols and he wants to go as far and as deep as we'll let him, not because he's this cruel masochistic, wants to make us suffer and slap us around and he enjoys that. If you ever got some kids, man, you know like the worst day is whipping day. I don't like whipping day. I went in there and closed the door and I say, okay, Ken, I need you to scream and I'm gonna hit this bed. Do not tell my wife. You tell my wife. I'll come after you. <laughs> so I'm going to hit this little bed, and I need you to go, ow, okay? okay. Ow! ow. <laughs> now, rub your eyes, get them real red, and I'm going to come out mad. These kids, I can't do nothing with them. It's just not the father's heart. But if it means their character, then you gotta do it. If it means their lack of growth and maturity, then it would be unloving to not chastise and correct. Because you wouldn't release a son at that point. You would release an orphan who looked nothing like their father. So the Lord is using this tragedy to go, don't get blinded by why the bad things happen to good people. You look at your own heart and you say, God, where am I at with you? Where am I at with you?
So he links this parable with this kind of diatribe against towards the tragedy and the reason why. And he links this parable in verse 6. And he tells this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. I wish I had a fig tree. (gasps) I exalt A man had a fig tree. And I read that. I probably read that. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. See, some of us are content to think that we, just because we're alive, that God is pleased. That you weren't created to just live. You were created to bear fruit. And God commands it. Why? Because it's not possible? No. But because with him, it's just the reality of what it is. <laughs> it's like the natural result of being connected with him is bearing fruit. Like, like that's... So it would be more foolish to go to an orchard and go, oh, wow, look, there's no fruit on anything. This is amazing. What a beauty. And I think to myself... What a wonderful world. It's like, no, that's actually the illogical thing. That fruit trees are to produce. Way to go, guys. That was, you were on cue. And so there's a man that plants a fig tree and he, Look, and there's something about fruit trees is that when they're from a distance, you can't tell that there's fruit on them. That the only way to find out if there's fruit on a tree is I have to get really close. And the scripture even uses stricter language and says inspection. So that would mean that the vine dresser was actually hoping he would find just anything. Where is that fruit? Let's see. Do you remember what Adam covered up with and Eve? Yeah. See, they were content to just be alive, but not content to produce fruit in accordance with the repentance. So they had the fruit of the looms on, but they uh, didn't have no fruit. You know, they just had the leaves. And here's what I've found is when you're just producing leaf, you're just trying to hide stuff. You look alive, but when on closer inspection, they say, Matt, that's judgmental. It's like, no, I'm just seeing what's going on. So we're just fruit inspectors around here. Where's the fruit? Don't see the fruit. Well, I'm alive. Mm, yeah, so's the rest of the world. But you weren't created to just live. You were created to produce fruit. You were created for fruitfulness. So he looks, and I can just see the vine dresser being like bummed out. Like, ah, oh, shoot. 
<clears throat> okay, owner of the field. You're right, there is no figs. And the owner of the field becomes upset because according to Levitical law, you let a tree rest for three years and didn't touch it. You didn't need any fruit. You just let it grow. You nurtured it for three years. So it wasn't like this thing was just planted in an amount of time and he was expecting something unreasonable. Three years it was planted. In the fourth year, if the temple was standing and you were ritually pure, you could take of it. But for anyone to eat of it, it had to be in the fifth year. So in the text, it says that it had been three years and there was no fruit. So it wasn't three years from the time it was planted. It was three years from the five years in which it would have been time to eat of it. So it had actually been an eight-year-old tree. So it wasn't a shrub. This was just all I had handy, okay? So I want you to think of, you know, an eight-year-old fig, like, with leaves everywhere, looking lush. And then you get closer and go, there's not one fig on it. So the man that saw fruit and found none said to the vine dresser, look, for three years, I've come seeking fruit on this tree and I have found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Think about that. That some people are merely existing, sucking nutrients, and refuse to produce fruit. I remember growing tomatoes and as I would watch YouTube videos and research, there was these branches and they were called sucker branches. They had no intention of producing fruit and they would grow on the underside of the vine and they would always grow down. And what you did to maximize the nutrients is you had to cut off the sucker branches so that it would produce fruit. So maybe ask yourself, what are the sucker branches in my life that are keeping me from producing fruit? Because as a pastor, I, I, feel, I feel I have a duty and an expectation for every single person to produce fruit. People say, well, that's unreasonable, you know, but well, it's just, I just, I have an expectation that everybody in here would become a rich, full fig tree, full of fruit that would be a testimony to the demonic realm and to heaven that God is still God. And if you give your life to him, nothing is impossible. And there's sometimes I don't see fruit and I get sad. And I'll lose sleep about it sometimes. Wondering people that I've shared my life with, why aren't they producing fruit? And like the psalmist said in Psalm 73, my feet almost slipped when I considered the way of the wicked. 
almost wonder, am I even called? But then I hear a testimony from someone and they go, I'm growing. Then my wife pulls me aside, hey, I met with so-and-so, and they said that they're growing. And then I realize, if they can grow in the same soil, then the problem's not the soil. The problem is the seat. I mean, the soil. Not the soil, it's the tree. What am I even saying anymore? Y'all pray for me. I told you. Are y'all with me? I don't even know. The problem's not the soil. The problem's the tree. Because other people are growing. So I'm getting to the place where I'm like, why don't you give up your seat for somebody that really wants to grow? probably never heard a pastor say that. Like, get in here. Oh, we're going to serve you and cater to your every whim. It's like, no, dude, you got to grow because I got to stand before God and give an account for you. So you need to quit playing games with this God and quit using a tragedy to change your theology. Well, you're preaching good, Pastor Matt. I'll encourage myself in the Lord. (laughs) The Lord was upset there wasn't any fruit. But watch how this story unfolds. Verse 8. And the vine dresser asks back to the owner of the field. And he answers him, Sir, let it alone this year also. In other words, give me another year. And this year, I won't just set it in the soil. This year I'll give special attention to it. I wish I had a shovel. If I had a shovel, I could really make this thing come home. Oh my goodness, golly, this. Man, tell you, so blessed to have a team so ready to be there to serve. But he says, let it alone this year also until I dig around it. Oh, and here's what you're going to really like. And put on manure. You excited about getting some of that on you? Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Isn't that something? That... 
the vine dresser says, mm-mm, give me one more year. Give me one more year. I don't want to give up on this fig tree because it is still alive and the life that it has, I think if I can work with it a little bit, I can get some fruit on this thing. So the vine dresser stays the hand of judgment, becomes the mediator between the owner and the tree and says, let me work with it. And as I work with it, I think I can get it to produce some fruit. So the vine dresser then digs back some of the soil because you got to get to the root of the problem of why there's no fruit. And the problem is not what above, what's above the soil. The problem's always what's below it. And so the Holy Ghost vine dresser just begins to dig back the soil. Because how many of you know the soil is not your source? And he digs back the soil and exposes the roots. And every good garden or orchard has a manure pile. Yeah. I found every church. (laughs) Has a good manure pile. And so that the thing that you didn't want on you would actually be the thing that gets put on you so that you could actually begin to produce fruit. That God links the tragedy as the environment to get you to produce more fruit. So the very thing you didn't want on you got thrown on you, not so that you wouldn't grow, but so that you could produce 30, 60, or 100-fold. That the problem is not the tragedy. The problem is with our unwillingness to draw nutrients from it. And so when you see that vine dresser coming with a shovel of manure, don't run off. Let him get at the roots. Let him place something dead on the roots. And before you know it, you'll reframe how you think about it. You won't see him coming with a shovel of manure. You'll see him coming with a shovel of fertilizer. And you'll say, oh, here comes the vine dresser with a shovel 
full of fertilizer. (laughs) And then you'll just be saying to everybody, fertilizer happens. I mean, it's just what it is. Oh, don't y'all get righteous in here on me. Come on. Do you see how Jesus reframes it? But you got to trust the vine dresser to go deep, man. And you'll feel like you're being exposed. Oh my gosh, you'll feel like you're being exposed. You'll say, where is that fig leaf? God says, I can't heal you like that. I can't heal what you hide. I can't heal what you hide. And he's so kind that he just lets you believe your own charade. (laughs) And you look back and you go, man, I wasn't fooling nobody but myself. Because everybody else already saw it long ago. And they're hoping you'll repent of it if they've got a halfway decent heart. (laughs) They're hoping you'll get healed instead of hide. But it's tough. There's nothing easy about it. But this is the pathway to fruitfulness that Jesus became the fig tree. You know, the fig tree was always representative of Israel. So there's a national destiny here pictured that it was like, no fruit. You've been walking with the Lord. You've had the promises of God, the hand of God, the presence of God. And a national destiny. But Jesus becomes the unfruitful fig tree. And takes the place of your unfruitfulness. And he says, if you'll just come to me in this dead manure looking place, I'll resurrect everything you thought was dead. And I'll bring it to life. what he wants to do in all of our lives. Become the unfruitful fig tree so that we might be the fruitful figs in the orchard of God. That Jesus is doing all he can to save the tree. Even a death on the cross. So Christ stands at the door of each man and woman's heart, seeking to gain entrance and requiring repentance from sin. But if there's no repentance, there'll be no fruit. And that tree will get cut down. Not because God has pleasure in that or he wants to, but it's the order of things. 
This fig tree was planted on purpose for a purpose so that it could bear much fruit. And you were knitted together in your mother's womb for the purpose of fruitfulness and Christ's likeness so that you could produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. God becomes the tree and he becomes the vine and he says abide in me and never disconnect yourself. Stay connected to the root of Jesse. Stay connected to that olive root that you've been grafted into to draw all the nutrients from the promises of Abraham. (laughs) Stay connected. Stay connected. In Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in. Our hope is that these messages will help you on your journey of discovering who Christ is and who you are in Him. You can learn more about our ministry at lvahs.org or follow us on Instagram at lakeview.hs.